It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be here each time. I, I don't know how many times um, I've gotten to come here to Lavington Baptist Church and speak, but this is one of those blessed times. Brother Jekyll and his comment to Brother McConnell about only getting to have two meals in 35 years reminds me of a, a quip one of my old pastor friends overseas said one time, he said, you only see your best friends a few times in life, and that probably explains why they're your best friends. And so, so Brother Jekyll and I have not had many opportunities to get together. He has spoken for us twice in North Queensland, I think, and both times have been a blessing. Our people love your pastor, but we promise that we will not steal him away from you. Um, we uh, have known each other so long that when we first met, the Dead Sea wasn't even sick. And so, but we do enjoy each other's company. And he's a blessing, and Jill and the children, I'm getting to know the grandchildren. Uh, we bring you greetings from Grace Baptist Church in Melinda in North Queensland. Uh, Brother Jekyll helped us uh, with the ordination of two of our men, Chris Dagan and Dave, or, um, uh, Dave Onus, uh, a year ago. And that was a great blessing to have your pastor and his wife there with us, and our folks were encouraged and refreshed. Now, I always think of a dozen things I want to say to you when I get up here, and I can only remember those two, so let's be happy. And we'll turn to Nehemiah. Um, the psalm we read is consistent with the Lord building the house, and I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of Nehemiah's toolbox. I'm a tool man. I love working with tools. I love making tools and buying tools and wish I could use those tools I buy. But I want to talk to you this morning about Nehemiah. Uh, men with vision are builders. Nehemiah is one of those men. And we thank God for godly builders. And for some reason or other, I, I think the Lord has laid this on our hearts. So let's pray. And then we're going to read a few more verses from the second chapter. So, Heavenly Father, this morning we want to bring our eyes to you to ask you to help us read carefully the Word of God. Every word of God is pure. We would not leave one word out or add one word in. We only want to read what you've given us. And then we want to have sanctified ears to be able to hear the Word clearly without uh, any confusion because Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And then we pray that you'll give us understanding. We need enlightenment more than men can give. And so we're seeking that heavenly enlightenment that the Holy Spirit, our blessed tutor, can give us as we read the word and as he instructs our hearts much more fully than any preacher can ever tell us. Then we're asking for that. And then we ask for grace to make application. We want to engraft the word into our hearts, and we want to apply it so that each of us is a builder, and we are acutely involved, deeply, lovingly, gladly, zealously involved in building all you give us to build, each of us. So we're seeking your help now. And we pray, Heavenly Father, since we know not even one heart, not our own, not others, we're praying that since you search the hearts of men and you do bring enlightenment, that you'll also bring conviction. Uh, we pray, Father, that that conviction will be acted upon from us, that we will want to do what you're convicting us to do. 
And then we pray, Heavenly Father, that if there's anyone here without the Lord Jesus, that they'll give solemn consideration to the claims of Christ from the cross upon their souls, that he lays claim to them, and oh, that they may bow the knee, may yield their hearts to the dear Lord Jesus. Now feed us with your word, Lord. We seek your blessing now, we pray in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we read from the second chapter of the book of Nehemiah. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad? Seeing thou art not sick, this is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad? When the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Then the king said unto me, For, for what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. I ask you to pay attention to those last five words of verse 5, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, The queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Here we have uh, today a momentous occasion, 40 years of faithful ministry. I rejoice whenever I come across one of God's servants that has stayed long at the task the Lord has given them. We have a pastor in North Queensland who's been in his place now for almost 45 years, and we thank the Lord for that. And I'm reminded of uh, Robert C. Chapman, uh, who was in a little church initially in Barnstaple in England, who was pastor there for 65 years. He died in his 90s, faithful to the end faithful preacher of the Word of God. And so we're in the queue. We are in that line of preachers. Uh, Susan and I were converted in the mid-1960s, and so for me it's 56 years in the ministry, 53. Uh, 53 as a pastor. And we rejoice that the Lord equips men and enables men to be in long service for the Lord. And so we thank the Lord and we rejoice with you. I give thanks for Brother Jekyll and for Mrs. Jekyll, their children and grandchildren. What a blessing to have so many family members serving here at Lavington Baptist Church. But whenever we look at rejoicing in these things, we who are pastors, we tremble at the 
burden of, of balance, of trying to find balance, because we have great gratitude to God and have loving admiration. And the scripture teaches us that we should wisely honor those that serve faithfully. One of the verses along that line that I think that fits with that is the Romans chapter 13, verse 7, verse that says, Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And we should be glad to say thank you, and we love you, and we rejoice in your ministry. Don't miss the opportunity. I encourage you to tell your pastor how much you love him and you pray for him. It means so much more than medallions and crowns and plaques on the wall. A word of thanks is worth a great deal. But I know when, when people say to me, thank you, Pastor, I tremble when men honor me as pastor. They cannot read my heart. Are they giving me too much honor? They would say it's too little. Am I too soon rewarded? And they would say it's too late. It should have happened before. Are they rewarding the wrong person? I often think my wife deserves much more honor than I do. Are they rewarding me with the wrong reward or at the wrong time? We know that the judgment seat of Christ will answer all these questions. There will be no mistakes made there. Exactly the right crown given to exactly the right person at exactly the right moment. And so we say, your pastor would say, and I say, that we are glad to postpone any crowns being given. And others, Brother McConnell would say the same, Brother Ernie would say the same, other pastors would say the same. So what shall we do? I want to encourage you in your study of Scripture to be looking always for biblical role models. I remember as a young Christian, saved less than a year, I think, when our teacher in Bible college assigned us a task of looking for a Bible character that we could copy, someone we could learn from. And my first Bible character that I still love was Caleb. Caleb, whose name means dog. I can go with that. I can travel with that. Caleb, faithful, steadfast, diligent, serving God, 40 years in the wilderness, conquering giants. Thank the Lord for people like Caleb. And I aspired to be an old man someday. I fear to tell you it has come upon me. <laughs> Brother Chris Hustler says that which I greatly feared has come upon me. Well, it happens, doesn't it? But what a blessing. I'm going to give you different quotes this morning, and you're going to say, why in the world did you tell us that? Well, I came across one some years ago. The devil has no happy old men. You ever heard that? The devil has no happy old men. I asked that. I quoted that in a sermon one time and said to one of the old chaps that was there about 90 years old, I said, Fred, is that true? He said, I'll let you know when I get old. <laughs> well, but the Lord sure has some happy old men, doesn't he? And isn't it a blessing to know that the Lord does? <clears throat> so this morning, I want to call your attention to Nehemiah. Noah built an ark. Abraham had his part in building his family. Moses built Israel in a sense. Solomon, the temple. Men who see what God gives them to see. Men who have a real vision from God are builders. 
I like the idea of being in the construction work. The Lord Jesus said that he would build his church. When he rose from the dead, he commissioned his disciples to continue this work of, dis- of construction. Pastors and missionaries and evangelists, in fact, every obedient disciple of Christ is in the building trade. We build the house of God with lively stones. When we win lost people to Christ, we're building a holy temple for the Lord with living stones. Paul describes himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10 as being a wise master builder. And most of you probably know that that word in English comes from the word architecton in the original, in the Greek language. What a good word it is to think that we are heavenly architects building for the Lord. And it's so important for us to see this truth. We are to prepare and perspire and become the best uh, and, and pray and become the best builders we can for the Lord. So we consider Nehemiah, what an example he is to the men of God in our generation. His heart was broken by the desperate situation of his nation. His calling was to build among the remnant. Most of the building material he had was rubble. And you know, there's even a picture there of our work because we move among the, uh, the outcasts, the, the broken people, the rubble of this world, and rescue out of that building stones to build for God. And isn't it marvelous to think when we look back before our conversion and see what a shambles we were, see how we'd been broken down by a cruel world, and the Lord reached out and loved us and made us useful for his sake. And he used some builders to do that. We're so thankful for that. Nehemiah depended, his ministry depended on his prayer life and his knowledge of the word of God. He faced strong criticism and opposition from his neighbors. He was beset by discouragement and ridicule and ecumenism. He was was opposed by compromise and indifference, but he had a vision from God. He had had uh, some willing workers who shared his vision and made it a historical reality. It's important for us to remember that. I noticed there in chapter 2 and verse 5, those words we saw at the end of the verse, he was clear in his goal that I may build it, the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. In this same chapter, you'll find in verse number 17, these words, consider here, then said I unto them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem hath, uh, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. I think it's interesting that Nehemiah was so clear in his objective. Consider also in the same chapter, of verse number 18, because in verse 18, then he tells those Jews who went with him to view the, the city. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, his, his helpers, his advisors said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. You can see how important it was to them to plan on building. Look in chapter 2 and verse 20. When he faced the opposition of Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. 
Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. We his servants will arise and build. And so we see in the second chapter the clarity of his objective. I had a dear old pastor friend overseas many years ago. His name was John Bunyan Wilder. And I could keep you busy all afternoon telling you about the faithfulness of this dear old saint of God. He's been in heaven now 25 or 30 years. And I loved Brother Wilder. He was a great influence in my life for good. Brother Wilder told me that he had a friend who, uh, who was a, um, a demo, uh, the head of a demolition crew. He had a crew of men that would tear down buildings. And so one day he said to him, he said to him, does it take much skill to tear something down? He said, no, it takes no skill at all. Anybody can wreck something. And so Brother Wilder said, what if we were to build this building that you've just torn down? He said, oh, that's a different story. It takes great skill to build. And I learned a lesson out of that. Because we see in our time, we see that there are demolition experts around everywhere who tear down the work of the Lord. Some of them are in the ministry. Some of them just warm the pew. Some are hit-and-run experts, and some like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem stand off at a distance, and using the catapults of their hatred, they sling their bitter words against the walls of God's work. Ah, but men with a true vision actively build up the work of the Lord. Now, we talked about this, and, we, and you are following with me, and you're saying, yes, 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 I agree with that. But have you noticed how often in Scripture the Lord talks to us about building? It's not a casual topic in Scripture. We, we can't even touch all the verses. But I want to read some to you this morning. And to save our time, to use it wisely, I'm not going to ask you to turn to the verses. I'm just going to read them to you. From Acts chapter 20, when the apostle speaks to the elders at the church of Ephesus, he says, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up to build up the saints, and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. And then in Ephesians, when he writes to this church dear to his heart, in chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, he says, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. He says to the Ephesian church, God is doing a construction work among you. He is building you together, fitting the, li the living stones together. The, the second last book of the Bible, the book of Jude, when Jude deals with the acts of the apostates, he contrasts their behavior with the believers and he says, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Isn't it interesting that there is a construction work that has to do with me strengthening myself and being willing to be set in my place in the service of God. Paul writes to the church in Rome in chapter 14 and verse 19, and he says this, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. So when I came to church this morning, the thought of my heart ought to be, how can I build up a brother in the Lord? How can I strengthen? How can I encourage? How can I assist a sister in the Lord so that we build up, we edify one another 
in our fellowship together to the Corinthian church. <clears throat> One commentator said that the Corinthian church was the church in the Bible that was more under the influence of its culture than any other church. Say, does that fit our generation? Are not our churches? We're not thinking of Lutheran and Presbyterian and Anglican. What about Independent Baptist Church? Are we greatly under the influence of our culture? And so the apostle writes to the Corinthian church and says, Even so ye, for as much as you're zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. And then further down in the 14th chapter, he says, Let all things be done unto edifying. Am I building others up? That's the plan. That's God's goal for us. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 19, the apostle says to the church there, We do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying, building up. This construction work is the Lord's work for us to be involved in. And then Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, and I'm sure you know this verse, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearer. Is there anything that destroys the work of God more so than careless words, corrupt words, chipping away, breaking down, weakening the structure? And so the Lord says, no corrupt communication, but that which is good to the use of building up, of edifying. To the Thessalonians in chapter 5 in verse 11 he wrote these words, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Edify one another, even as also ye do. And to his son in the faith, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 4, he says, Neither give, hate, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. Don't pay attention to the foolish fables. Fairy tales did not go out of style 300 years ago. They're still in the churches. Paul says to Timothy, don't pay any attention to fairy tales. So those are the verses that we find in the New Testament. And so the example of Nehemiah, who was actively involved in building the walls, rebuilding the broken walls, and setting up the gates of Jerusalem. But I want to call your attention to his toolbox. If I could go and look, men, in your shed, and I asked you, can I look at anything, and you said, sure, help yourself, I'd like to look in your toolbox. I love tools. I often make tools to use, and I enjoy them so much. But I want you to look in, in Nehemiah's toolbox with me. Nehemiah's tools are the perfect tools for men of vision. If you're a servant of God and you have a desire to do those things that are pleasing to the Lord, you'll want to look in Nehemiah's toolbox. What's the first thing we find there? I want to suggest to you that in the toolbox there are some unusual tools. And the very first one is found in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Because here we find in chapter 1, a bottle of tears in verses 2 to 4 that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, 
And I asked him concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept. And mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. There was a bottle of tears in Nehemiah's toolbox. And I want to say to you this morning, dear friends, that I sincerely believe that if you would be a builder, you have to have a tender heart. If you would help men up out of the gutter, if you would rescue men from the slums, from all the corruption that's in the world then you have to have a tender heart. There was a man some years ago in America whose name was, two words, born drunk. Most everybody knew him by that name. He was actually delivered at his birth in the sawdust of a saloon. His mother and father were both drunks, and he was drunk when he was born. The alcohol was in his bloodstream, and the poor fellow was born drunk. That was his name. His life was so affected by the alcohol and the terrible effect of drink on his life that he didn't have a sober day until the Salvation Army, Lassie, told him of the Savior, and he was converted. And then he became a, fo- a solid, faithful witness for the Lord Jesus and told others about his dear Savior. But oh, where would he have been if the, if the lassie had not had a bottle of tears in her toolbox? Do you have a bottle of tears in your toolbox? Do you weep over people who are lost? Do you yearn after them? Nehemiah had a tender heart. I'd call attention to, your, uh, to, your, uh, to the second tool there. And he was moved with the plight of his people, the first tool. But the second tool was his knowledge of God's word. Almost every phrase of his prayer in chapter 1 is quoted from Scripture. I think this is such a great thing. He knew his Bible by heart. Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan that his blood was Bibline. You cut him anywhere and he'll bleed Bible. That's a good quote, isn't it? And so it would be true of Nehemiah that he knew the word so well that when he put his fingers together and he closed his eyes and cried out to God, or he lifted up his hands to God and said, Oh God, we are in distress. Your people are in reproach and adversity, and the walls are broken down, and the gates are burned with fire, and we have no defense. And his heart was tender, but his heart was filled with the word of God. So the second tool, after a bottle of tears, I suggest, was a scroll of the law and his toolbox. He not only read it, he memorized it, and he meditated on it to the extent that when he prayed, his prayer was full of scripture. It's a marvel to read the first chapter over and see all the things that he quoted from scripture. Now there's a third, there's a third tool in his toolbox. And this tool actually had to do with his work clothes. I'm going to suggest to you that his work clothes were included in his toolbox. And if you examine his work clothes, there's one striking mark of identification that this was a builder's uniform because the knees were dusty. 
You remember the old quote from many years ago that one man said we could always tell when revival was coming to our church because our pastor's knees got very dusty. We understand that, don't we? It means he did a lot, he did a lot of praying. And that's the case with Nehemiah. One commentator I read this past week said that there are 14 prayers of Nehemiah scattered through the book. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? And some of the prayers are very short. Do you pray any of those? I expect it was a short prayer in chapter 2 when the king said, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He didn't get down on his knees and pray for 45 minutes before he answered the king. It was as quick as, Lord, help! What do I say? What do I say? What do I do? Do you have any prayers like that? Well, you should. Whether you're driving or whatever, you need some of those prayers available and you're practiced with those prayers. So his third tool was his prayer life, dusty knees. He knew how to pray first before he did anything. He knew how to pray much. He knew how to pray desperately. He knew how to pray urgently. He knew how to pray in every situation. He knew how to play to, to pray biblically. And if he had a power tool in his toolbox, it was praying biblically. So that's the third tool. This fourth tool is an unusual tool because if we could have looked in his toolbox, we would have found his own heart there. And when we found his heart and we examined it closely, we'd find that it was branded with one word obedience because his fourth tool was his submission to authority say can i ask you a question this morning for you to consider before the lord how easy is it for you to work under authority do you resent being instructed what to do or are you capable of submitting to the authority god gives to you, whether it's in the home or whether it's in the workplace or in the church or under governmental authority, are you able to say, yes, I believe God delegates to men limited authority and that we are to be subject to our authorities to submit. Let every soul be subject to the high authorities. Are you capable of doing that? I have to tell you a little secret this morning. There are people who cannot submit to authority. And do you know why? Because they've never truly submitted to the Lord's authority. He sets people over us. And we find blessing when we submit. A centurion sent word to the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 7. And sent, sent by the Jews. Would you please Heal my servant. And the Jews said to the Lord Jesus, He's a worthy man. He built us a synagogue. Come quickly. And the Lord Jesus on the way meets other messengers coming. And the centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter my house. If you'll just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I also am a man set under authority I also he said above me I have chief captains and above them are other officials in the Roman Empire and ultimately there is the Caesar and I am under authority and because I'm under authority then I'm set in authority 
And I have servants that I say go and they go, and I have soldiers that I say come and they come. And he said, so Lord, just like I am under authority, I also, I see that you're under authority. You're under authority to the Father. And because you're under authority to the Heavenly Father, then demons, disease, and death must flee away when you give the word. And the Lord Jesus turned to those following and said, I haven't faith, found faith like this. No, not in Israel. Uh, what a lesson there is to learn. And so Nehemiah was under authority first to God. And when he hears of his people's plight, he cries out to God for help. Say, did you know that our prayer life is an indication of whether we're under authority to God or not? Oh my, that convicts my heart. And then, he, and, and then Nehemiah was under authority to the man appointed by God to be his authority, who was the king. And you find that respectful, submissive attitude of subjection every time Nehemiah talks to the king. That worthy respect. And because he was under authority, then when he comes to Jerusalem and he takes men to inspect the walls, they say... Yes, your vision is our vision. Let us rise up and build. And in 52 days, they repaired the walls. Isn't that a marvel? Who ever heard of a building project like that? You know, in time, I trust the Lord will help you to build the building you need as the Lord directs and gives wisdom and all the rest. How would you like to do it in 52 days? Mm -mm. Brother Floyd Risher would say it doesn't get any better than that. Well... He was under authority and in authority. That's what you find in his toolbox, is an obedient and submissive heart. That's his fourth tool. His fifth tool in the box was the calling God gave him. I, I call it a divine blueprint. He knew how to read it. He was committed to follow it, to bring the walls and gates to completion. And so as you look in the toolbox, you keep finding these unusual tools, a bottle of tears, a scroll of the law, work clothes with dusty knees. You find an obedient and submissive heart. You find an, a, a blueprint for God's plan for his life. He knew what he had to do. And then, and then the sixth tool, I find, is a backbone of steel because Nehemiah had convictions you know, did you know that the, that, that word is almost passed out of our vocabulary? A few years ago, I brought a Sunday school lesson on the importance of having biblical convictions, like Daniel did when he said, no, I, I won't eat the meat offered to the king's idols and the drink, off, drink the drink offered to the king's idols. I won't. He had convictions. Now he had grace to go with it. And he appealed to the king's servant that was going to feed them this, this idolatrous food. And the Lord heard his appeal, but Daniel had convictions. And one of our young men in the church said to me, I've never heard about this. All the years I've been a Christian, I've never heard anyone preach on having biblical convictions. And so he started growing his own. Those are the best. You don't want to borrow your pastors. Grow your own. You can live under your parents' convictions if you have to for a while, necessary. Brother Roloff used to say, you don't have any convictions about that. Well, you can, you can borrow mine until you grow your own. So grow your own convictions. And Nehemiah had grown his own. And I'm interested as I read the book. I love reading this. 
He had a conviction that God's work was to be done by God's people, God's way. That's a good conviction to have. The Samaritans need not apply. Their ecumenical appeals fell on deaf ears. <clears throat> Tobiah was not welcome in the temple. Intermarriage with pagans was not to be tolerated. I enjoy reading the convictions of Nehemiah. So I pull out the steel backbone and I say, yes, that's what I want. I have to grow my own. Lord, help me. There's one more tool, a seventh tool, and it's in a box, inside the toolbox. And when we open the lid, we find godly wisdom there. The last tool, the seventh tool. I need, I need to back up just a minute and, and say about convictions. That Nehemiah had backbone. He didn't have wishbone. <clears throat> he didn't have jawbone. He didn't have funny bone. And he didn't have lazy bones. If you can find some more, I'd like to know them. He had backbone. But the last tool that we see in Nehemiah's toolboxes, that is his wisdom. And I want you to turn there. We haven't looked up a whole lot of verses, but I want you to turn to chapter 4 and verse 17. And this is the wisdom one of the examples of the wisdom of Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew that they needed to build. <clears throat> he was also discerning enough to know that they had enemies that would do anything possible to hinder them building, carrying on the work of God to completion. Those enemies we've mentioned before, Tobiah and Sanballat and Geshem the Arabian. But in chapter 4, verse 17, Nehemiah records this we believe for us they which built it on the wall and they that bear burdens with those that laid it that carried the burdens that, that loaded every one with one of his hands wrought in the work and with the other hand held a weapon it's the double-handed wisdom in chapter 4 and verse 17 every one of his laborers had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other the vision of building for God is never accomplished without the trowel. But the trowel will be smitten from our hand if it is not defended by the sword. With an unusual, what an unusual combination of tools. Both are sharp edged. But one is for mortar and one is for keeping the enemies at bay. And you know the enemies of Nehemiah and Jerusalem and Judah stood afar off and gnashed their teeth in frustration as they beheld the two-handed wisdom of Nehemiah. It's the most solemn lesson for the Lord's builders in our generation. We must defend the gospel. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, he said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. I'm set for the defense of the gospel. These are the words of faithful servants of God, of martyrs for the faith. I was talking to the young people the other night, some of, one of the groups of young people about William Tyndale when he was burned at the stake in Walford. And uh, when he was burned at the stake and the wood was piled around his feet and his hands were tied behind the stake, he had a last prayer to pray. And it was not, get me out of this. His prayer was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. He was committed to be a martyr for the faith if necessary in order for the building to be done that needed to be done with the word of God. How thankful we are for that. We rejoice in the goodness of God. Uh, so many times we find men having to stand alone because they would defend 
the faith. If we lay down the sword or cast it aside, if we cease to oppose the old heresies that come dressed in modern guise, if we are no longer set for the defense of the gospel, if our hearts shrink from the polemic epistles and the solemn warnings of the captain of our salvation, if the sword is dulled by being sprinkled with reformed theology, if it is softened to putty in a new evangelical scabbard, then all the other tools will be taken from us and the vision will fail. It's the sword that holds the enemy at bay while the trowel does its work. We must remember that all the business manuals written by all the church growth gurus can never replace the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword and the trowel set for the defense of the gospel. Militant truth. Don't be embarrassed about the truth. Some years ago, someone told me that a, a chap in the Uniting Church, a minister in the Uniting Church, had been assigned to a little parish not far away, and that he was from my home state. He had been a Lutheran pastor overseas, and so I thought, I need to go and meet this chap. His name was Jed, and I went to sit down with him and talk with him, and within just a few moments, he began to chip away at the gospel to begin to break down the great truth of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection for our souls, for our salvation. And I stopped him. And I said, Jed, the gospel of Christ is non-negotiable. We're not going to discuss any thoughts that would tear down the great truth of redemption in Christ. Very quickly, he backed away, and he saw that there was no fellowship to be had there. Oh, friends, truth must be militant. Error exposed and opposed without fear or favor. When the sword is militant, the trowel is triumphant. Write that down. When the sword is militant, the trowel is triumphant. We can build if the sword is unsheathed and ready for battle. Oh, friends, we must be set for the defense of the gospel. We can only build in proportion as we battle. Now, you're sitting here and saying, all right, yes, but we need to make this practical and use it continually. What a contrast between Nehemiah and the pragmatists. What a contrast between Nehemiah and the people who said we can do better if we let Sanballat and Geshem and Tobiah help us. Those are the church growth experts of our day. One of Winston Churchill's quotes is a very fitting description of the churches of our day that have traded in their swords for mobile phones. Huh. He said they, he said they, the pre-war nations, I want to read this slowly, see if you can catch this. They go on in strange paradox, facing Adolf Hitler's plans for Europe. They go on in strange paradox, decided only to be, decided only to be undecided, resolved to be irresolute, adamant for drift, solid for fluidity, and all-powerful for impotence. All-powerful for impotence. You know, if, if we go around today and we talk to pastors of other churches, members of other churches, and we ask them, how strong are you for the defense of the gospel? And they'll say things like, we wouldn't want to make waves, would we? I expect your pastor has told you, he keeps you informed well, that um, 
my memory fails me. What's the fellow at Saddleback Community Church in the States in California? Rick Warren. Rick Warren. There's not the least possibility I'm going to preach to you this morning on 40 days of purpose or 40 years. But Rick Warren has been cooperating with Islamic, do you call them gurus? What are the fellows that are in charge of their mosques? Imams, some kind of mom, dressed like mom and called themselves dead anyway. He's been cooperating with them in a movement to combine Christianity and Islam and to call it Chrislam because they believe that Allah and Jehovah are the same person. That's not true. Allah has ties to Baal, not to Jehovah. And so I'm saying to you that we need to be ever so clear in what we believe. The churches today that are no longer militant for truth, no longer set, churches and pastors, no longer set for the defense of the gospel, no longer holding the sword in one hand and the trowel in the other. That's the case in our generation. Some of you may have come from churches that have moved that direction and you remember the old days when they used to preach the Bible and you said we're no longer staying there. We're going to go and find a church where the Bible is preached. I commend you for that choice. Let's keep in mind, dear friends, that we want to be thankful for pastors and churches that build according to God's blueprint that have the right things in, in their toolbox, that have in the toolbox a tender heart, that have there the scroll of the law, that have dusty knees, that have an obedient and submissive heart, that have a blueprint, God's plan for our lives, that have a backbone made of steel, and so we, and, and, and have a large portion of wisdom. We want to have these men as our pastors. We want to have this kind of church. Needless to say, it's going to be out of step with so many others. So, Brother Jacob, we do really thank God for your wisdom and your faithfulness and your diligence in holding the sword and the trowel. We thank you for the, content of, the contents of your toolbox and your ministry here at Living the Baptist Church. And, dear church, can I, can I urge upon you the necessity in days to come, if the Lord Jesus tarries, my days as a pastor are coming to close. Your pastor will sooner or later catch up with me. Uh, that's not easy to do when you're old and you're not as old. And so, But anyway, it happens, doesn't it? And you'll have to find a new pastor. Look in his toolbox. Don't let him bring in Valentine's Day's day cards and soft, warm, fuzzy teddy bears and chocolates and huggy, smoochy stuff. Make sure he's got the right contents in his toolbox. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And we want to be able to say, Lord, we might be few, but we're going to be standing for you and we're going to have the right contents in our toolbox. So we seek your blessing, Lord. We thank you so much, Father, for everything you've done and we give you all the glory. No man deserves praise. It's all the work of the Lord. 
we feel like we're merely unprofitable servants. But ah, we would be faithful, Lord. We would do your commands and be strong in service for the Lord. Make us like these men of old, like Nehemiah, who knew how to build. Never let us, Lord, be destroyers of those things that you are building. Give us wisdom and help us now. Bless this church mightily in days to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.